This is the most important election in the history of our country. United, we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. Hello and welcome to the SIPS podcast, What's at Stake for the World? Global Perspectives on the US Election. My name is Rita Abrahamson and I'm your host for this edition of the podcast, which focuses on what's at stake for Africa. It's fair to say that the Trump administration has paid very little attention to Africa. President Trump himself deeply offended many of the continent's leaders when he described African countries with a term so rude that I will not even repeat it here. It took President Trump a full 18 months to appoint an Assistant Secretary of State for Africa, during which time this all-important office was empty or occupied by temporary officials. Almost two years into his administration, there was still no ambassador deployed to 20 of Africa's 54 countries. And Trump has only met with two heads of state from Sub-Saharan Africa in the White House. And finally, when the administration eventually launched its Africa strategy, it was not so much about Africa as it was about America first and US power competition with China and Russia. All that said, Africa has never really been very high on the United States foreign policy agenda. And generally, there is little difference between Republican and Democratic policies towards the continent. President Obama, for example, was widely popular in much of Africa and visited the continent on several occasions. But his policies, when we look more closely at them, differed little from those of his predecessor, President George W. Bush. So much as many Africans, as well as political pundits and professors like myself, tend to expect more favorable Africa policies from democratic presidents than from Republican ones, that may not necessarily be the case. Or is it different this time around? Is the difference between President Trump and Vice President Biden so big that we can expect very different outcomes from, for Africa, depending on who wins the election in November? With me to discuss what's at stake for Africa in the election, I have two excellent experts and long-term observers of African politics and international relations. Dr. Comfort Iro, who is director of the International Crisis Group's Africa program. She's based in Nairobi in Kenya. And Gilbert Kadiagala, who is Jan Smuts Professor of International Relations and Director of the African Center for the Study of the United States at the University of the Witzwaterland in South Africa. Welcome to you both and thank you so much for joining me for this SIPS podcast. It's, it's just great to have you here. Thank, thank you. you. I think Maybe before we launch into what is at stake in this election, it might be useful to take a look back at the Trump administration's policies towards Africa. Comfort, perhaps you could start us off. Um, what would you say has been the impact of the Trump presidency for Africa? Um, thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me onto your podcast, Rita. Um, I mean, I think um, in a sense, the, the impact has been, has been mixed. Um, across the continent. Um, at a big picture um, level, um, I would say that the impact relates to how the continent um, continues to be, and certainly more explicitly under the Trump administration, instrumentalized as part of sort of great power competition, particularly between the US and, and China. And as you, as you know, and you, and you mentioned in your introduction, you know, the centerpiece of US foreign policy 
that was revealed by the former um, national security advisor john bolton um really about you know about how africa would be crucial to u.s efforts to curtail china's global ambitions and to, and to also an extent was related to, to Russia as well. I think at another sort of big picture level, um, it's that Trump has sort of been a welcome attraction to some African leaders who also share some of his characteristics, especially the penchant for a more transactional style of, of doing um, foreign policy or even domestic affairs, a less democratic style and sort of more free, a more freewheeling approach to, to politics. Um, I would say that also because we are talking in the context, an another big picture issue, because we are talking in the context of a global um, corona pandemic, I think it's worth noting that I think perhaps the most damaging um, impact um, of the US brand, brand you know, foreign policy is the abdication of US leadership on the public health front. And here I'm thinking particularly of the US decision to pull back from the WHO and what that has meant for US relations having influence on developing Africa's own public um, health security architecture. You know, and as you know, I was recently talking to one of my colleagues who told me what you know a US diplomat you know said on this issue. And he, you know, he said that back in you know in 2014, 2015, the US, you know, was largely engaged. In the West Africa Ebola crisis. And in the past, whether you agree with them or not, um, the US would lead, would be a leading voice on these issues. But he pointed out that, you know, the current, you know, president is someone who condemned President Obama's decision to send CDC experts to West Africa during that crisis. And in fact, got on Twitter as well to, to demand that those Americans, you know, who went out there should, you know, should not be allowed back into their own country. So those are just like two big examples on a bigger level. But if I look closely to the regions, um, then some have felt, some regions have felt the impact of the Trump presidency more than others, unsurprisingly, because, you know, of their strategic relevance. So, for example, two regions that I think I would say that have felt the greatest impact under Trump have been the Sahel mm -hmm. um, region and the Horn of Africa. Uh, the Sahel, um, having watched the UN the, the US be very ambivalent towards its engagement there, we saw the announcement at the start of this year of a new um, Sahel envoy. Um, we welcome that. I think it's a, it's a good signal that the US is taking seriously the instability in that region. And also, as you know, the US does have you know, military um, bases and military presence in the West Africa region, whether it's in, in the Sahel or further afield in, in, in Nigeria. The, the region, however, I think where I would say the greatest impact has been, I was in the, in the Horn of Africa, it's Somalia, Sudan and South Sudan, and more recently, the decision of the US to engage in the Nile waters dispute between Ethiopia, um, Sudan and, and, uh, and Egypt as well. Um, I'm happy to go into each of those, but I think that's, it. if I look across the region, the Sahel and the Horn are, are where I think we've felt the presence of the Trump presidency. And it's been around the traditional areas of counterterrorism, um, and it's been around the issues of stability and security and about um, US concerns um, at the fight against you know, jihadi insurgency groups as well. But it's also been very much around the US own posture vis-a-vis -vis China. That, that's really interesting. I, I want to put a similar question back to Gilbert. I mean, what you mentioned is sort of, uh, 
almost on and off strategy mm -hmm. of the US. You know, on the one hand, it has engaged quite actively in certain areas and certain conflicts. And at the same time, uh, President Trump has said, oh, we're going to draw down our troops in Africa. We're going to stop engaging militarily. Uh, Gilbert, what would you say has been uh, the, the sort of main impact, particularly vis-a-vis -vis military and security engagement? You know, from the Southern African perspective, uh, the record is equally uh, very mixed, as uh, Comfort uh, has put it very well in, in the rest of the, the region. Here, the key element of South Africa's role in the region, I think the U.S. did acknowledge uh, South Africa's uh, leadership role, particularly on security issues in the region. But the problem is that uh, the Trump administration came up very clearly with a very awkward policy. Uh, and the ambassador wasn't appointed until uh, last year, actually, almost three years into, into Trump's presidency. And uh, that rubbed the South Africans uh, on the wrong side because I, I, they, they, the South Africans always expect that the U.S. would treat them as, a, as a, almost an equal partner, a respectable partner in this region. But the other problem with the South African part of the relationship, Trump had made very many comments about white farmers uh, being dispossessed. And uh, it also didn't come out very well, particularly since you have a lot of um, uh, racial issues uh, stemming from the legacies of apartheid. So uh, an American presidency prioritizing white farmers and their treatment was not really the best approach on the part of the Trump administration. But having said that, I think the relationship has kind of stabilized somewhat. Uh, Ramaphosa, President Ramaphosa here is one of the few presidents uh, that Trump has been talking to on the phone or they have met at G8 meetings. And uh, they seem to begin to have a, a, a functional relationship uh, given uh, Trump's own uh, idiosyncrasies. Uh, but on the military and security arena, the, the other issue is that the U.S. has been very much engaged in training of, uh, of troops in the Sadak region. These are very low-level engagements. Uh, the leadership in the region doesn't really want to talk about the military dimension of U.S.-Africa relations, particularly South Africa, even though the African command is very much present. In, uh, they are training soldiers in Zambia, in Botswana and all this, the region is very actively uh, in U.S. Uh, military radar. And uh, as long as the relationship is kept, uh, there hasn't been that much contention about uh, role on military security issues in the region. Uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting of acceptance of U.S. Uh, military engagement in this region, but at the same time, very clearly public denials about wanting to be seen to be engaging with the United States. It's kind of a schizophrenic relationship, but I think it has helped the regimes in this region because they can continue to pretend that uh, they are in charge of their own, own security, but the U.S. is very much part of that equation. That, that's, that's an interesting point, Professor Kilbert. I mean, I think the latest counting was that there were at least 22, at least US um, special operations were deployed in at least 22 African countries um, as well. And a couple of them are in, in, in the Southern Africa 
um, region, um, including uh, Tanzania and Madagascar as well. I wanted to pick up also on the point you made, uh, Gilbert, about uh, President Trump engaging in this issue of uh, white farm murders in South Africa. I think it's something like uh, he has sent more than 20,000 tweets and about four of them have mentioned Africa and two of those were about um, this alleged uh, increase in, in, in farm murders. Now, we don't necessarily want to get into the specifics of that, but I wondered about with this election campaign and the racial riots or protests that we've seen, Black Lives Matters in, in the US, how that plays into how the elections and how America is perceived in the African continent. I know the, the, Afri the AU chairperson uh, and many other African leaders sent protests about the killing of George Floyd and so forth. So how does the Black Lives Matters and the, 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 the prevalence of, of, of Black protests in the U.S. at this moment in time play into U.S.-Africa relations and, and how people are watching this election? You know, the Black Lives Matter was a momentous event uh, for this region because uh, race is a big issue in Southern African history. The legacies of, of apartheid and colonialism and oppression, but there's also the perception that these things have not gone away. The racial inequalities in this region uh, the economic uh, uh, disenfranchisement, continued disenfranchisement of, uh, of black people still remains a, a big, big question on the. So when it emerges uh, through the lens of the Black Lives Matter, through the continued uh, segregation and discrimination and harassment, of, resonates very well with the broader. Uh, and I want to say here that. Uh, the general public really doesn't care very much about uh, because the ele U.S. elections are elite phenomenon. I mean, I mean, the people who read newspapers uh, tend to actually to pay much attention to that. But a movement like uh, the Black Lives Matter is is a it transcends, uh, I think, class and race because people could easily grasp uh, the significance of that moment. Uh, in the United States to their, to their livelihoods. I think they can relate to the continued discrimination here, uh, even police harassment of ordinary citizens here on, on racial grounds is still very much uh, uh, a lived experience. So that's why I'm saying it did attract the attention of the ordinary people. And then of course there is the historical uh, fascination in Southern Africa, in Africa as a whole, with Black Americans as a community in the diaspora, as a community that people here can relate very easily to. So it was in that context that the internationalization of the Black Lives Matter really fed into domestic discourse. Newspapers actually paying a lot of attention to it. And people are still reflecting on that moment as a key moment in defining what this election is going to look like, or at least they hope, they hope that the Black Lives Matter movement is going to help advance the agendas of, uh, of uh, Biden and the Democratic Party. And this has also been, a, I think, strengthened by the appointment of Kamala Harris as the VP uh, presidential candidate, uh, VP candidate for, for Biden. So it all fits into, 
I think the narrative that Southern Africa can relate to and continues to relate. I mentioned that also, come on, come on, please, comfort. Sorry, I just wanted to, to, to add that also, I think what's interesting um, about the whole sort of US, I mean, you asked the question about perceptions basically and how it's, and how this was viewed and how um, the, the, the death of, of, of George Floyd um, was perceived and on the continent. I actually think what's interesting also is how the various, how various activists and civil society groups and commentators are using or have used the, the whole Black Lives Matter um, in the US to also criticize the failings and, and the history of police abuses in some of the African states as well. So in, in Kenya, we saw Kenyans marching and you know, listing names of those who have died as a result of police brutality. It was a moment in which these countries were also saying, well, look at yourselves. Um, as we can criticize the US, but it's not as though we don't have police abuses in our own countries as well. Nigeria, um, um, you know, it was criticized at home. It, you know, it has, has been the country with the largest black population um, and that has failed to live up to its own principles that Black Lives Matter at home and to make sure that, you know, we don't see human rights abuses and, 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 and police and military um, abuses as well. And of course, certain, you know, certain, numbers of people, you know, as you suggested, um, Professor Gilbert, have enjoyed giving the US kind of like a smack on its face as it continues um, to lose you know, international moral authority uh, of being the standard bearer of, you know, human rights and democratic principles as well. So, of course, you know, you, you mentioned South Africa, the ANC piled, up, piled on, you know, lots of criticism against the US, but President Ramaphosa, if I remember, also used the moment to say, ah, but we also have problems at home. And, and noted the abuses that was taken at home. So I think it's been interesting to watch how it's both, it's, it works both ways, both as a moment to criticize the US, but also as a reflection of, as to what's going on in our own societies, as well at the, at the hands of, of, of police and other um, security forces. It probably shows in some ways how this is a, a global or transnational movement that uh, has effects in, in, in both continents. I wanted to, to, to ask a little bit about the differences that we may or may not expect depending on who wins this election in November. I said in the introduction that traditionally policies have varied little between Republicans and Democrats. Do you think that is the case or will we see visibly different policies if it's a President Trump or a President Biden? I think that there will be some continuity, especially in the area of peace and security, you know, and stability. Um, and it's worth noting that President Trump did, in fact, build on some of, own, of Obama's own sort of Africa policy in terms of the priority regions. I said already the Horn of Africa in particular, the level of frustration that the Obama frustration towards the end of their, of their time towards South Sudan is very much reflected also in, in the Trump's administration own handling of South Sudan also. Um, I would also say that, that even in Congress, um, we did not see a break, but a continuation of that bipartisan consensus that, that, we're, that we're familiar um, with seeing on the continent. Um, I do think that a Biden administration will, will probably want to bring back um, to the center stage one of the crucial pillars um, under the Obama administration that, that has sort of been sidelined under Trump, which is you know, democratic principles, institution building and human rights, you know, while continuing um, to focus on trade and investment like all his predecessors, if he, should he win, 
um, would want to continue. So I don't, so there will be some changes. I think there will be a lot of continuity. There, there will also be, I think, a, there will be a slightly different tone as well that you will be, if, if a Biden administration um, should win. I think we'll have to wait and see whether um, a Biden administration will continue um, the current US obsession with China and to see and to continue to see um, Africa as a theater of competition between it and China and also Russia. Um, I think it's worth noting, however, that even under the Obama administration, there was a tendency to paint China in a very negative light. You'll recall yourselves that Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, you know, used various, you know, um, um, Africa-focused speeches um, to also remind, you know, Africa or to tell Africa that America is more concerned about its own democratic health and human rights and security, and that China was less interested. Um, did not have the same level of concern and that China was in it to grab what it could of Africa's wealth. So, you know, that 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 negative image of, of Africa, I think, pervades all the administrations. So I don't I don't expect to see anything different. But I expect that the tone would be different and I also expect there to be to be less transactional. Um, and I think I think it's worth also reminding ourselves that in the end, um, you know, what has been safeguarded in terms of Africa policy has been as a result of the career Africanists, whether in, whether in Congress or State Department or DOD, you do have long-term Africa watchers in, in the bureaucracy um, who have done well to, to try and navigate those difficult contentious issues um, around Africa. And they've tried in the absence of a clear strategy or the absence of, of clear direction from the administration, they've tried to craft for themselves or try to steer the administration or various administrations around in terms of what, you know, an Africa policy ought to look like as well. So, so, so I think you'll, you'll still see, you know, the foot soldiers trying to guard and protect and nurture and make sure that there's more, there's a more sort of more, more forward leaning US administration rather than one that has had a tendency under Trump to be more reactive to everything. I think one of the weak links in the, in the Trump administration, I also think what betrayed the Trump administration was this, there was this obsession, has been this obsession with, with China and to stare everything through that lens while keeping those traditional things like um, development and, you know, and aid and trade and investment um, alive as well. I agree that um, continuity is really going to, Africa in general hasn't been that prominent on the radar of US foreign policy. So the areas of engagement are very limited and have been clearly defined since the Clinton administration almost 25 years. Mm -hmm. I think uh, companies are correct that uh, any change in the White House is going to make a difference, particularly uh, if that changes from a, a Trump to a Biden. Mm -hmm. Trump has been a polarizing figure, uh, not just within the domestic context, but also in, in international arena. And the things he said about Africa, the things he thinks about Africa uh, are well known. So the key question, therefore, is, if there is going to be change, it's really a matter of, you know, who is there? Uh, is it a Biden a Democrat? And Democrats have been generally, you know, favorable to African interests. 
they have been sympathetic to some of uh, the aspirations of Africa. So any change from, and, uh, but again, we do appreciate that substantively, uh, the differences are not going, in policy, the differences are not going to be that significant. And I was actually struck because you, you are correct. Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, is the one who started this anti-China crusade in Africa. And uh, when Bolton picks it up in the Africa strategy, it is essentially articulating a policy that is already in place. Exactly. We are worried about China in Africa. It needs to do something about African governments need to be careful about how the Chinese are exploiting them. This is the narrative that was crafted, crafted very carefully under a democratic president and is actually not going to go away soon. But it's also not going to go away soon because the U.S. is not doing enough to meet the kind of needs that Africans are demanding from the Chinese. Uh, so it's a, it's a puzzle that the, the Chinese Africans go to China and they get all these assistance in infrastructure and so on, in soft loans. But when they go to Washington, nobody listens to them. So the, the, the war between the US and China in Africa is not going to end soon. I think it's just starting. It is just beginning. And the uh, Biden administration would probably change some things around it, but I think it will remain basically the same kind of concerns about where is Africa going and what can we, what can the U.S. do about it? Yeah. If we've mentioned uh, China a few times. The, the U.S.-Africa strategy also mentions Russia. And of course, they're also in recent years, we've seen a kind of re-engagement of many other actors on the African continent as well, Turkey, some of the Gulf states, India. Is there a sense that the U.S. is losing influence on the African continent? And, 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 and if so, what would be the consequences of that? There is an element of exaggeration about the U.S. losing its influence in Africa. I think there is still significant social power that the United States has across Africa. And this is demonstrated by the density of relationships, particularly cultural and educational exchanges between African countries and the United States. So to me, that is where real leverage matters. Uh, the cultural, the soft of this power that the U.S. has exerted over Africa for many years. And that is not going to change. What may change, however, is uh, issues around maybe economic engagement. And that's why the China threat particularly the Chinese investment in infrastructure, I think has been more heightened in recent years because those are the kinds of engagements that the Chinese are good at. And therefore, I can see the U.S. losing that kind of leverage. But I don't even see the U.S. losing a lot of leverage in the military arena. The U.S. is still very much in the Sahel and across the rest of Africa through its military power. In fact, what the Trump administration was suggesting a few years ago was actually to cut back on U.S. military engagement in Africa. So that is a decision that the U.S. is making about its military. But I think at the more broader level, the U.S. is still going to remain very part of uh, uh, the daily lives of most of, most of us. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely agree with you, um, uh, Professor Gilbert. I, I do think there's a tendency to 
to overstate the, the extent to which the US um, is, is no longer sort of uh, relevant or is losing influence. I mean, I, I would rather say, and I think it's a lot more nuanced, that it, it, is, it has a more minimalist approach, maybe uh, a more narrow focus. But even those areas that it's focusing on are, are, are strategically important. You know, for, so for example, um, you know, where you see the US in terms of its deployment of, of its special forces, where AFRICOM um, is located it's itself, um, the fact that you have, you know, you know, US troops in 22 countries um, shows you that this is not a, a US that is losing influence, but it's a US that is deploying its, 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 its bandwidth in, in places that are, that are of significance. Um, to it and to its own interests. And those interests are around counter-terrorism, countering, countering um, the jihadi threat. Those interests are related to trade and investment. Those interests are related to its wider um, strategic um, um, concerns, re regardless of China and Russia. There's also the Gulf states' um, interests as well. So I think it's, it's, it, it will be a mistake to assume that the US um, is, is not, that the US is, is losing ground um, in, 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 on the continent as well. What is, however, what is true is that China has stepped up its presence, um, you know, that, 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 and that the continent itself has a more nuanced view of China's own engagement on the continent, um, that the, the continent um, views with concern the manner in which um, the US sort of um, discusses China's engagement on the continent. Um, and I also think that the other sort of concern is the way in which um, African um, states are concerned that, that the US doesn't necessarily um, understand what are the sort of the driving forces of, of, of African sort of own strategic interests going forward as well. And at the same time, I think it's not just the US also that finds itself having to rethink, or, or it's not just the US where I think we should ask the question about um, relevance on the continent. There's the, the European Union as well. Um, you know, its own relationship with the African continent is also evolving, just like the US relationship is evolving. And simply my understanding of this is that the continent has numerous choices today. So it doesn't necessarily rely and have to go to the US as the very first port of call when it has a crisis. It has choices. The traditional Western allies remain um, at the center of that. But increasingly, there's Turkey, there's the Gulf states, there's, there's China, and also in terms of business interests, investments, and in terms of sort of um, um, maritime issues, you've got India, you've got Japan, a um, number of players, um, and that just makes the landscape um, more complicated, but it also makes, you know, it also makes diplomacy also um, very multipolar, and it, it, it makes, makes resolution to crisis also complicated as well. So it just shows you how increasingly connected um, the continent is to a number of relevant um, international processes that are, that are taking place as well. I think that's a, a very good place for us to end. There's so many things I'd like to pick up on. I can see Gilbert also being eager to come in, but unfortunately our time is, is up. So uh, we'll have to make it uh, another podcast, another time, I think, to follow up on this. Um, 
I'd like to thank you both for participating. So thank you to Comfortero and Gilbert Cardiagala for a great discussion. Thank you to our listeners for listening. And I will close by saying that if you enjoyed this SIPS podcast, uh, then be sure to check in for our other episodes in the series, What's at Stake for the World Global Perspectives on the US Election. You can follow us on Twitter and you can check out our website so as to make sure that you never miss any of our activities. But for now, it's thank you and goodbye from SIPS.